I'm Taffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah. continue our Harry Potter read-through series, uh, which, by the way, has been a big hit with us and with you, apparently. So thank you to everybody who sent us messages of support. Thank you to our patrons who are getting involved. Uh, If you heard last week's episode, we had our patron Erica join us to talk about Prisoner of Azkaban. Next week, we're going to also be joined by a patron to talk about Order of the Phoenix. Um, If you want to be featured on The Half-Blood Prince... Uh, you can, it is not too late, you can still sign up to be our patron at any level and have a shot at that. So uh, hurry to patreon.com slash yapodcast if you want to get in on the action. This week we're talking about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which is actually uh, both of our favorites. Well, Bailey, is it your favorite of the series or like a favorite of the series? Yeah, this I'm I'm on the fence about. It was historically always one of my favorites, like as a like as a teen um and like up until a few years ago I might have it that might have shifted um but it's definitely still one that I thoroughly enjoy reading I mean I thoroughly enjoy reading all of them but I there's something about the fourth one that I find very pleasing I think I'm in a similar zone. There's a lot about the Goblet of Fire that that is really exciting. Um, the Goblet of Fire is the fourth book in the series, obviously. Uh, it sees Harry Potter going back for his fourth year at Hogwarts, but he also gets to go to the Quidditch World Cup. And we kind of see his interest in Quidditch really expand in this one, which is really fun. Like, I think it's very cool to see Harry not just as a student, but also growing as an athlete and like considering professional athletics as well as other career options. He's 14. That's a time when you start to kind of think about where you want to be when you grow up. We see Harry Potter participate in uh, the Tournament of Champions. That's not what it's called. (laughs) The Triwizard Tournament is the word Teffer was looking for. (laughs) And there's a lot of intrigue and mystery and we learn more about Voldemort. Uh, so let's get into it. Bailey, what is it about this book that makes it a favorite for you? I think part of it is just what you're talking about. Um, I think the pacing in this book is really good. Um, like there's so much, I think that a few of the other Harry Potter books potentially, especially the earlier ones, suffer a little bit from like everything happening at the end. And, like, the first half is, like, so much exposition, and then it's, like, all the action happens at the end. Whereas this one, there's, like, exciting stuff happens all the way through this book. Like, I love the Triwizard Tournament. I love all the, like, different tasks. I, yeah, I think it's a big... And then I think also, um, I think there's something really cool, and you sort of touched on this with, like, Harry's kind of starting to think about his place in the wider wizarding world and, like, thinking about, like, professional athletics... I think this is the book where the wizarding world really opens up for us. And I think that's also very cool and fun. I think this book is also at a really fun sweet spot um, where 
the plot has started to become more complicated. The characters are getting a little bit older, but things haven't gotten super dark yet. So it's a kind of, um, I think it's one of the most fun Harry Potter books for me to read. If I forget what happens at the end while I'm reading it. If I trick myself into thinking this is the first time I've read it. I really agree with the pacing. I don't think I've ever like put that into words, but you're right. The pacing of this book is a an, um, significant improvement from the three previous books. Uh, there are really things unfolding throughout the narrative. And um, it also, it really is, I would say it's not just like, a fun story before things get dark it's also the point at which things get dark the end of goblet of fire is where the stakes rise we go from there starting to be murder murderings of voldemort coming back murmurings of voldemort coming back to voldemort is back voldemort is killing people again uh and we don't get another harry potter book without a casualty for the rest of the series it's kind of like how right around March 10th, I was going, wow, coronavirus is kind of a big deal in the rest of the world, but it's never going to get there here. And then by March 15th, I was, you know, home. Yeah, very much. It's, so it's this really interesting turning point because we do, we get the sense right from the beginning of the book that things are starting to get dark, but they haven't yet. So it's, it's high stakes, but it's not so high stakes. Yeah, it's a really interesting sort of transition that happens in this book. I think, uh, and this is a bold conjecture, but I also think that the gayness escalates dramatically in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And I think that that Mm. turn is also one that continues through the series. Now, the first inkling of this, this is the first book since uh, Sorcerer's Stone that does not start with Harry Potter. Um, Mm -hmm. And it actually does not start with anybody we've encountered before. And it starts with an old man, uh, Frank Bryce, who I really like. The first section of this book is is actually one of my favorite parts. Like, I really enjoy it. Uh, And Frank Bryce is definitely gay. And that is what I have to say about that. Yeah, that's fair. I'm with you on that. I also find him a really, like, compelling character who I was very sad just died immediately yeah you know what i said that the end of the book is the first casualty but that's not true frank bryce is the first casualty and frank bryce is a muggle and that's really significant that the first murder we see from voldemort is um an old muggle man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time Mm -hmm. and i i was having a conversation with um my roommate the other day about like saddest deaths in the Harry Potter series. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know if this one is supposed to be because it's, it's an, un, but I actually like, I find this death very sad and tragic and very moving. The muggle deaths, I think are always written as sadder than the wizarding deaths because there's mm. something really sad about casualties of a struggle who are not involved in the struggle at all. And that's what all of the muggle murders are. Um, But it also is really a testimony to Voldemort's vendetta against anybody who isn't him, right? This is what happens when people take a certain kind of people and elevate them above anybody else. Um, You can murder muggles for sport. You can terrify and torture muggles for sport because they don't matter. And that's, I think, in the previous books... 
we didn't see that element of Voldemort. We saw Voldemort wants power. And we we heard about Mudbloods a little bit. There have been inklings. And in this one, it really, really comes together as this is a mob of people who hate anyone who is not 100% wizard born and have utmost disdain and absolutely no respect. You know, seeing packs of Death Eaters terrorizing muggles at the uh, at the World Cup is kind of where that starts. But it does start with Frank Bryce. And, and we start seeing it as hate crimes instead of just as sort of dealings in the shadows as we have in previous books. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that really gets me about Frank Bryce is we also see, we see the ways in which, like the insidious ways in which Voldemort, but also sort of the magical world in general, um, can really like fuck with the lives of muggles, not even on purpose. Because before Frank Bryce dies, we also get this sort of heartbreaking account of his life, which is basically that he was accused of the murders that Voldemort committed And he was let off because there was no way to tie him to them, but has essentially spent the rest of his life ostracized because everybody thinks he did it anyways. And that's so tragic. Absolutely. And that's the kind of thing we we really see Voldemort uh, and his followers having so much disdain for muggles, disdain for house elves. We see, you know, wizards trying to pin crimes on house elves. It really is a picture of what happens when you decide that Uh, no one who isn't like you is worth anything Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely we get yeah this is the book where we really start to see um like unintentional casualties and how um i mean we're also of course going to get that with cedric at the end just like the complete disregard for like like the, the the way in which voldemort and his cronies just see people as utterly disposable um, at least Cedric's not even a muggle-born, whatever, he's, but he's in the way, and doesn't matter. And, I mean, we've talked about class before in these books, but Cedric, I, I feel like the Death Eaters, in addition to having magical or muggle-born class, absolutely have wealth class as well, and sort of uh, how old your family line is class. And I get the feeling that Cedric is kind of working class uh magic born and maybe he's only wizarding born for a couple of generations like he's not a pure blood family like the lestranges or the malfoys who are sort of the the purest whitest wizards right and so he becomes disposable i think that's a really good point is the way that class intersects with um with with pure bloodedness because really if you think about it um like the purebloods are essentially um, the oh, what's the like? They're the nobility of the wizarding world because, like, by by definition, if you're going to be able to trace your family's bloodline back ages and ages, you're also like you're just your your family is just going to be a very established, powerful family, most likely, um, and like the kinds of families that. I mean, there's just so much class coding that goes into it. Like, in in the real world, who cares about keeping bloodlines pure, marrying within a certain tight-knit circle? It's the nobility. It's people of a specific high class. Um, So I think that you're totally right that the Death Eaters are very much, or pure bloods, um, because we do get some non, like Snape's a half-blood, for example. Uh, 
the, the pure-blooded Death Eaters and that ilk are all, they are also wizarding nobility, basically. There's something that's that's striking me that's a little eerie about this, which is thinking about the ancientness of the magical families and their wealth. I feel like what we're looking at is wizarding families who have been totally okay with using magic to manipulate themselves into positions of power uh, and to manipulate themselves into wealth. Because if we're looking at very ancient houses, I mean, when you look at ancient families in Britain, they go back to, as we were talking about before, before the statute of secrecy, right? And we get this later in the books, we get people talking about how using magic to subjugate muggles should be fine. Uh, so when we look at the really, I think there's there's a reason that the really ancient pure blood houses are really wealthy, Uh because we have people whose principle is it is fine to con muggles out of things in order to put wizards forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, like, I never spent a lot of time thinking about where the wealth in the wizarding world comes from, but all, all of the wealth that we see in the wizarding world basically is old money. And I think just as a general, like, principle, old money usually comes from power and exploitation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think most money comes from power and exploitation, if you if you sort of broaden it, but um, like n- none of the wealth in the wizarding world comes from trade or from enterprise or anything like that. It all is just this old family money. Yeah, um, it's true. Where does anybody get money in the magical? I guess where does anybody get money? <laughs> <laughs> like period. Um, there is a wizarding aristocracy. And their money came from somewhere. Because none of the none of the wizards we see involved in like trade or commerce are wealthy. They're all doing fine, but none of like we we get lots of shopkeeper wizards and wizards who have businesses and stuff, but none of them are enormously wealthy. We I don't even think we even really get the idea that like Fudge, for example, is enormously wealthy. Well, yeah, I mean, much like much like the real world, people who actually work for their money tend to make a living either a better or worse living and people who benefit from structural inequality get obscenely rich um which is why we should redistribute wealth yep 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 so wizards Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, speaking of gayness i want to circle back to the gayness because i do really stand by this book as very gay um And I was really struck on my reread slash browse through because I did not do a full and proper and thorough reread, but I did browse how much of a crush Harry has on Cedric. Like Harry has such a crush on Cedric that I I genuinely would believe that Harry's thing for Cho is just about like wanting to be the person who is with Cedric. Harry talks all the time about how handsome Cedric is and how nice Cedric is and what a good Quidditch player Cedric is. And like, I do feel like our sort of cultural communal crush on Cedric Diggory, which I had before Robert Pattinson was cast as Cedric Diggory, uh, really came from just Harry being really hot for Cedric. That makes so much sense. I had not. So I was... I was aware, and I think I think I I don't know if this came from my own head or from hearing this analysis. I was very much aware of Ron's crush on Crumb, but I also I like this. I can I totally buy this reading that Harry just has has a big buy crush on Cedric. Um, yeah, I love it. 
yeah, I mean, Ron's crush on Crumb was was somewhere I was gonna go also. Um, but like the part where Cedric has to tell, or Harry has to tell Cedric that the first task is dragons. Mm-hmm. I feel like the scene mirrors the scene where Harry asks Cho Chang out for the first time, almost exactly. Like it Harry, totally does. Yeah, he like waits around for Cedric to come out of class. He like creates a reason for Cedric to have to hang back and talk to him. He like makes his bag split and Cedric's like, "Oh no, my books." And Harry's like, "Oh, Cedric, I have to tell you something." Like it's very it's it's very I mean, I'm sure there's a thousand fanfic about it because like it's it's all right there. And you know like Fleur, who is the only girl, we need to talk about these names at some point because Jesus. But <laughs> Flower of the heart. Fleur. I mean, just like, like, I mean, we need to talk about how non-British people are portrayed because like, whoo, mm-hmm. whoo. But uh, anyway, there could have been this flirtation, this tension with Fleur. Like that could have been the storyline. But instead, it's the storyline with Cedric. And that's really gay. And I like it. Yeah. Oh, 100%. It's very, it's very gay. Um, And I can't believe that I hadn't noticed that before. Because, yeah, I totally, I mean, in general, like, I'm very on board with, like, Harry's very bi. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, I mean, we all know about his infatuation with Malfoy. We don't need to get into that right now. But, um, yeah, no, I totally, I totally buy this. I, I'm down. Oh, my Um, God. Sorry. I just realized something. Mm-hmm. What do Malfoy, Cedric, Cho, and Ginny all have in common? They're all seekers. Ooh. <laughs> Harry's not bisexual. Oh, Harry is seeker sexual. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Yeah. If you're, a, if you're a seeker, Harry's hot for you. I'm hot for uh, seeker. That's incredible. I love this. Um... I also want, okay, maybe this is totally off base, but, like, do we think that there's any kind of a, like, romantic undertone in Ron and Harry's friendship? There's a lot of fan art on the internet that thinks so. So Ron is a sloppy little Pisces, and as a fellow sloppy Pisces, I would believe that Ron falls in love with anybody he is in any way affectionate toward, because that is how Pisces are. There's definitely a, a an attachment there, a connection. Tell me more. Tell me more about where this comes from. So I think this is coming off of something. I think this is a really interesting book for thinking about the trio. Because, and maybe I think that this, I think that the way the trio's dynamics are going to evolve in the later books. But in this book, I think we get the really clear picture that like it is a trio. But it's like Harry and Ron are best friends. And then there's also Hermione, who they both also like very much. But it's there's definitely a hierarchy of, like, it's Harry and Ron, and then also Hermione is there. And they like and respect her mostly. But it's, like, Harry and Ron are the core. Um, and I was thinking this with this in terms of there's a really, there's a line, like, when Ron's not talking to Harry, um... Where Harry's like, when Hermione's your best friend, there's a lot less laughter and a lot more hanging around in the library. And so I think, and I want to talk about the Hermione dynamic also, because I think it's it's really interesting that we do get this idea that, yeah, like, Ron is the, 
Ron is Harry's primary attachment, and then Hermione is also someone who he values and cares about, but she's not Ron. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And then just the whole way that they're like fight and the weird jealousy and like how like Harry and Ron just like fight in this book with so much like passion. Um, and I think that's part of where my like oh like hmm like. This feels a little bit like a lover's quarrel to me. I I hear where you're coming from with this. And I think it's there's a strong argument to be made. I personally don't read chemistry between them. I don't even know if I read chemistry so much as just like a, a really strong sort of infatuation that could border on the romantic. Yeah, I could buy that. Uh, again, like... They're both such emotional and volatile people, and they're both people who live very much in their feelings. Uh, and again, also as one of those people, I know that that sometimes it can be really hard to make a distinction um, between friendship and romance. I think it's also worth thinking about Ron being Harry's first friend and that being a special friendship. Especially in terms of like Ron, like like Hermione wasn't Ron kind of thing. Because Ron and Harry were really bonded like from the first. And there's something special there. Um, and they they have a kindred spiritness. It's interesting. It's going to be really interesting to think about, I think, especially in, uh, in, in Half-Blood Prince. I think the other reason I read it is like, and maybe this is, maybe... But there's also this really interesting thing where, like, this is the book where Harry and Ron are, like, supposed to both be starting to be interested in girls. And it's entirely unconvincing. Oh, they're not interested um, in girls at all in this book. There is, there, it's just, it's just not there. Ron is just feeling yeah. FOMO and projecting it onto Hermione. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Ron, Ron is upset in her, about Hermione and Crumb because Ron has a crush on Crumb. And but like when you like talk about them with the Yule Ball, like they they have no interest in anything resembling dating actual girls. So I think I was also thinking about that and how it's like yeah, like all they want to do is hang out with each other, and that could also just be like that doesn't necessarily have to be romantic. That could just be like boys who aren't like who are not really interested in romance yet because they're like you know still kind of children. I do uh, think it's interesting in this book that we see Harry kind of looking at older people who are in relationships more I feel like that comes up a little bit more than it has in previous in previous books like well I mean part of that is just that he's eyeing Cedric and Cho right mm-hmm. <laughs> which could have different reasons um now I'm not sure if this is actually based on anything but definitely well maybe it's just with everybody asking people out like I think about the time when Fred and George talk about how they got dates and like Harry and Ron are like, how did you ask them out? And they're like, just, do you want to go to, is just like, right, I haven't asked her yet. Hey, you want to go? Yeah. And there's kind of this like casualness and we have just kind of Ron and Harry being like, whoa, like, what is this world? What is this like feeling casual about something? Um, and that's really fun to see. And we also get the idea that like Harry did not manage to ask Cho to the dance in time because Cedric has any cool and asked her first instead of waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks feeling awkward about it and then asking in a super awkward way right 
Yeah, absolutely. I think another place where you're thinking about Harry thinking about older people in relationships comes from is um, Hagrid and Madame Maxime get together in this book. And Harry definitely observes that a lot. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for, for reminding me of that. I love that. I love that they get together. I love that their relationship is sustained through the rest of the series. Um, and it's not just like a one time like, ha ha, Hagrid's flirting, but they actually have a connection and like go on to do things together. I really love seeing Hagrid as more than a joke. And and Hagrid is really, I mean, does a lot in this book. Mm-hmm. I also really like, I think that we do... I like that we see little sort of like reasons why they're compatible beyond both being half giants also. I think that's really important. Like we get, I think we get a foundation of them as like a couple who makes sense together. Um, be Like for reasons other just than just that they are both half giant. And I think that's really nice. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I mean, they first bond over her having really impressive horses. And it's like Hagrid could never be with somebody he couldn't talk about cool animals with. Yeah, exactly. It's it's great. So speaking of Madame Maxime, uh, should we, shall we move a little bit into talking about how outsiders are portrayed in this book? Yeah, yes, let's. Oh, boy. This is the first time we've gotten an inkling of there being a larger wizarding world with the World Cup. And uh, apparently the wizarding world outside of Britain is just completely populated with stereotypes. Everybody has, like, you know, something to show that they're from somewhere else and they're not British. The Americans all have big American flags on their tents, which, to be fair, is probably accurate. Uh, uh, Cho Chang has a name that is, you know, not an actual Chinese girl's name at all. Because two different last names. Yep. Yep. As one, in, she has, I believe, it's a Korean last name as her first name, and uh... instead of doing any research, she who must not be named was like, uh, I don't know, this sounds Chinesey. Um, yeah. There's a. Uh, just all of the names, right? Victor Crumb, Karkaroff, Madame Maxime, Fleur Delacour. It's just like people have real names in the world. <laughs> yeah, that one she actually researched. Fleur Delacour, Flower of the Heart. Oh my god. I mean, I guess some extra people might have named their child that. And, par- and Fleur's parents are like absolutely extra. It's just, it's just so silly. I mean... <laughs> The author does have a history of giving people ridiculous silly names like uh, Wolf McWolf, the werewolf. Um, it's true. I'm honestly surprised she didn't name all the French people like Francie McFrance Pants, especially given that like France is a woman's name. <laughs> yeah. They could have just been all named Francoise and Marie France. France um, Francoise. <laughs> oh, I like the uh, Boyabaise. I remember reading this as a teenager and like my father grew up in France I have French family they're they're immigrants to France but like I I grew up you know with family speaking French and like knowing my family from France and I was just reading this and I was like how are they French it was just so like 
Oh yes, in France, everybody is beautiful and we all eat bouillabaisse all the time. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. Yeah. My family lives in the country and eats McDonald's, okay? <laughs> yeah, they're French because they're beautiful and effeminate and look down their noses at everyone else. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's it- France. Right? Like, France and Britain are basically the same country historically. True, true. Like, like more or less. And this is how freaked out this author is by people who come from basically the same country. I mean, we have the Irish also, who are, you know, next door. And all of them have red hair and are covered in shamrocks and, you know, have leprechauns <laughs> jumping out of their ears. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this author just loves a stereotype. Just, just loves her a stereotype. I mean, and it's everyone. You know, we have the referee being this horrible stereotype. We have the the minister of Bulgaria being this horrible stereotype. It's just, it's everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. we haven't talked. Uh, oh, because they're in this book, like Parvati and Padma Patil as well. <sighs> Yeah, it's just like... Everyone's a stereotype. The Bulgarians all wear fur coats instead of robes and go swimming in the lake in winter. Yeah, and they're all, like, you know, evil, essentially. And and insular <laughs> and paranoid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm extremely masculine in a dangerous sort of way. You know, the movies pushed this a little bit further. In the movies... The the school, what's its name from Bulgaria? Durmstrang. Durmstrang has only boys and, uh, uh, you know, magic stick. What's it called again? What? <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. The French school is literally called Pretty Wong. And the and the Soviet school is called Durmstrang, which has got to mean something, but I don't know Russian. Why do they uh, anyway, or like German? Why do they speak? Aren't they Bulgarian? We don't we don't know where the school is. I think I think we're supposed to get the like Bogota is definitely French. Yeah, but like I think that Durmstrang is just sort of like vaguely. Eastern European. But Crumb flies for the Bulgarian team. Yeah, but so like he could be from Bulgaria, but not everyone in his school is necessarily from Bulgaria. That's like a- it might be a school with a larger catchment area than just one country. That's true. I didn't think of that. It's the school for for uh people who are too bad for Slytherin. Um But in the movie yeah, it's not a <laughs> geographic uh yeah. In the movie, you know, everybody from Dermanstrang is a boy and everybody from Pretty Sticks is a girl. Uh it's just weird. I mean Yeah. Yeah, otherness is just very um yeah. Okay, I knew Dermstrang was like ringing a bell for me. It's a spoonerism for st- Sturm und Drang, a borrowed German expression meaning turmoil or ferment, uh, deriving from the name of a highly emotionally driven German artistic movement of the late 1700s, precursor of romanticism. That's so boring. 
Um, and it's just it's so striking to me that like like the effort at making the Wizarding World more diverse is also Europe. Just, yeah, just Europe, of course. Like wizards are not only British; they're also Europe. They're also the <laughs> continent, and it's so fucking British. <laughs> oh, this is like. Like, clearly these schools are supposed to be, like, more than just one country, but they're very, like, it's, like, the German-slash-Soviet school and the French school. I'm waiting for, like, like, the Spanish school where everybody has huge dark eyes and wears ruffly robes and just has sex constantly. <laughs> At the, the Spanish the, school, they didn't have wands. They all carried guitars. <laughs> but mm. they were so magic. Sorry. Well, so now I'm thinking about this. It's like, okay, so Durmstrang is clearly the Slytherin school. Yeah. And Bobatola is the Ravenclaw school, which implies the existence of a Hufflepuff school and a Gryffindor school somewhere in Europe. I think, personally, I think the Hufflepuff school is the Dutch school. That might just be my bias because Hufflepuff. I'm Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> but they're just all, you know, they just like they just milk their cows and grow a lot of tulips. And they're really big on herbology in the in the Dutch school and uh, and like pseudo environmentalism. But are we dividing all of Europe into four schools? Because then Holland is teensy. And I don't well, think Holland yes, gets would... to have a whole school. <laughs> <laughs> no, it it's like Scandinavia and Holland. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nordic countries plus Holland. Yeah, and so I would say the, like, romance languages world, Spain, Italy, would be uh, Gryffindor. And I'm not just saying that because that's where my background is. Yeah, there's a lot of big feelings. Um, And Gryffindor is is all about the big feelings, so. Wait, I'm sorry. (laughs) Stereotypically, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like, if we're going. Okay, so, so. The Hufflepuff school is in, in in Holland because, you know, they're into breeding flowers and Hufflepuff likes herbology and everything's kind of chill. And Spain and Italy are there because they're ceilings. No, feelings. Oh, feelings. Big feelings. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm drawing on stereotypes about these places. This makes a lot more sense. I was wondering why you were so aghast, because I was like, I mean, I know it's not stereotypical, but that's that's the thought experiment here. I Um, thought you were saying ceilings. Like, (laughs) their ceilings are really high. So you know Gryffindor is very associated with high ceilings, Tefer? God. I was so confused. Uh, feelings makes a lot more sense. Yes, lots of big feelings and, like, drama. <laughs> yes, that's what I was talking about. <sighs> and then Britain, you know, is just an amalgamation of everybody else's stuff. <laughs> Oh, self-burn, <laughs> the author, self-burn. Oh, God. Wow. Okay. Mm. 
<laughs> we don't have a lot of time left. It no. is such a... F- <laughs> it is ridiculous that Harry is allowed into the tri- the Triwizard ta- Tournament. Oh, it is it's such... Ridiculous. Go. It is so unjust. It's such a bananas, like, binding magical contract. Like... And also the fact that Dumbledore is just, like, so incurious. Like, have you thought about, like, doing some handwriting analysis? Like, I'm sure you've got an idea of who might have been able to do this. Like, you know it had to be a powerful wizard. Let's, like, interview each of the adults who is here. There's only, like, 20 of them. It's got to be one of them. Like, Can we also talk about, like, the giant loophole that is apparently the goblet cannot like realize that there are only three schools in the um tri wizard championship i mean i think it is suggested that crouch uh barty crouch jr puts a confundus charm on the goblet right but yes but like this is a goblet that is apparently completely foolproof oh unless you just put in the name of a fourth school then you're right all set like (laughs) I mean, like, I've got to agree with Madame Maxime. That's, like, someone who wants to let Hogwarts have two bites at the apple, right? Like, I'm so mm-hmm. sorry for my French accent. I can speak French, but putting on a fake French accent is very hard for me in English. Mm, um, fair. <laughs> I do speak French. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it is not fair. Like, it's super not fair. For Hogwarts to have two champions. That should not have been allowed. I, I, and then, you know, this is what leads to children getting killed. If somebody had just investigated even the slightest bit. It's just so convenient how the whole thing works out, right? Like, oh, binding magical contract. We have to let Harry compete. It's, It's such a, like, let go and let God moment. Like, no, it's a cup. Yeah, this is all fake. This is what happens when you get people who are, like, so invested in constructs that um, that they, like, can't imagine, like, going against the construct. Like, the Goblet of Fire and this binding magical contract contract is just a, a social construct that they could decide to opt out of. Yeah. But they don't. Yeah. And so, yeah, now I have suddenly veered into thinking about how the author is a flaming turf, and I'm really mad about that. Anyways... <laughs> Uh, you know we can dwell on that. The author is a flaming turf. Do you think mm-hmm. like do you think turfness is somehow linked to this? Or are you just Well, it's the idea I I think the connection I was making in my brain is like so this like this this whole like we can't change this because it came out of the goblet of fire is like that's such a construct, right? Yeah. Like that's such a co- social construct of like you could choose to do something different, but you're so married to this social construct. Mm-hmm. And isn't that the whole, like, transphobe turf thing is, like, we have this social construct that y- gender is real and it is inextricably linked to what's between your legs and um, trying to bust out of that is, like, the worst thing anyone could do. Um, yeah, so there's that's my thesis. Which is hilarious based on the idea that Harry came out of the goblet because somebody mislabeled him. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think you can also sort of like, 
I mean, there's so much. That's the thing. Like, sorry, we're going on to like one of my favorite rabbit holes, which is like thinking about Harry Potter and queerness and the author's transphobia and homophobia, but also like how much queerness you can find in Harry Potter, which is like, I feel like the whole Muggleborn thing feels like such like a trans analogy to me also though like not a perfect one but i think there's like a lot of like parallels you can see like uh, yeah. between like the the muggle-born experience and the trans experience um and so it's so interesting i think you can also definitely so think about it in terms of squibs um yeah there's really interesting analogies to be made yeah it is so weird and and it is why i feel totally comfortable sort of taking this universe back from the author who doesn't deserve it is that it is so queer it is such a queer universe possibly just magic mm-hmm. magic might just always be queer I, <laughs> um i i remembered like another bit that i wanted to to think about uh which is cedric giving harry the password to the prefect's bathroom and harry taking this really luxurious bath and like running around naked drawing the bath in this room and taking this luxurious bath on Cedric's behalf while being watched by a ghost um, is (laughs) such a weird and like very queer and very weirdly sexual scene in this book that made me have a lot of feelings <laughs> when I was young enough to get feelings from 14 year olds um it's <laughs> there's just like there's a lot of weird sensuality that crops up yeah 100% um yeah the whole like Cedric being like you have to open the egg underwater and go to the special fancy bathroom that's just for me. Yeah, it's my special fancy bathroom. Also, what the fuck? Hogwarts has a whole fancy bathroom for four students. <laughs> it's eight students, but yeah. Or no, well, it's whether or not they're gendered. It might be eight, it might be four. I guess they can, also, like, make rooms out of nothing. So. Also, we learn later that Quidditch captains can also use that bathroom, so it's 12 students. Plus head boy and girl, presumably, so it's 14 students, but yes. Are you sure the head boy and girl don't have their own special bathroom? <laughs> I, I'm not. Um, other, okay, my question about the prefect's bathroom is always this. So there's a password to get in, but it's just like there's no cubicles or anything. It's just literally this room with a giant bathtub. So, like, is the door smart enough that if someone else is in there, it doesn't let anyone else in? Or, like, could any prefect at any time just walk in and another prefect buck naked? I think all the prefects bathe together. That's why the tub is so big. Oh, the prefects are all just having one big... Like, the prefects are all just one big polycule. (laughs) God, why do we always come back to polycules? Are we ever going to get through an episode without saying the word polycule? (laughs) We didn't say it last week. We don't say it that often. None of us are even poly. (laughs) No, none of us are. I think this might be a you and Caddy thing. I don't think it comes up that often. On no, with Caddy and me, on. it's pegging. <laughs> okay. Uh, we we actually have to wrap up. Oh, I'm sorry. We didn't talk about the things we were supposed to talk about. Also, my math was off. It's way more than... Because there's two prefects 
chosen every year starting like you're chosen in the fifth year but then you continue being a prefect um so at any time there are six prefects in each house um so there are 24 prefects plus the four quidditch captains is 28 plus potentially the head boy and girl so 30 people use this bathroom that's a lot of people in one tub (laughs) it is It seems like a pretty big tub, though, so... I want this tub so badly. Oh, I know. Especially because, like, swimming pools are closed right now. Mm-hmm. I think if I, I could was... create anything from the Harry Potter universe for myself, it would be this tub. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi... Send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at tepperbear and at thebalesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhope, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dever. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend. Maybe a friend who, uh, I don't know, likes Goblet of Fire. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by me, Tepper Jemian, and edited by Tom Zalatnai as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. I'm Tom Zalatnai, host and producer of Up for Discussion, the emotionally honest comedy podcast. What does that mean? It means we're not afraid to get vulnerable, explore the human side of comedy, and be super duper open about the ways that we're struggling to become better people along the way. Still have no idea what I'm talking about? Fair enough. Come give us a listen. The Up for Discussion podcast, available on the Upford Network and wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey there, campers. My name is Emmett, and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 experiences, from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know were there all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gaze in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast.